and welcome to Opika's Innovation in Care Collaboration podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I am a solution-focused care senior scientist here at Opika and having served as part of a statewide children's system of care for almost two decades, I learned very quickly that we must support those that we serve, but equally support those who are serving our staff, our administrative staff, our direct care staff, and everyone in between. Today's show will be highlighting the work of specialized alternatives for families and youth, also known as SAFI, and how they are building a community of healing. Today, we have the leadership of SAFI Nevada, and our panelists include the Executive Director, Valerie Hicks, the Clinical Treatment Team Director, Melinda Rhodes, and the Clinical Lead, especially of the Neurosequential Model of Therapeutics, or NMT, Christy Bonfils. And they will share how they are moving beyond a compliance-based model in order to support health equity, as well as keeping a trauma-informed, success-focused-based care throughout their entire organization. They will share ways how they are now making sure that they're supporting at the most important level, which is direct care staff, including parents, youth that they're serving, as well as supervisors and administrative staff. So throughout the SAPI organization, they're building a climate and culture of healing. Today, they will share specifics on how they've implemented the Neurosequential Model of Therapeutics, or NMT, which was developed by Dr. Bruce Perry and his team at the Child Trauma Academy in Texas. NMT encapsulates a developmentally sensitive, neurobiologically informed approach to the clinical work that's being done. And what we are doing here at OPICA is to partnering with innovative leaders and innovative work being done throughout the country and beyond. And we at OPICA support success-focused care and keeping the person in the center and not just predicting risk, but we want to predict success. To learn more about our amazing person-centered intelligence solutions or the work being done by any of our panelists today, please reach out. And we are thanking you again for joining us and looking forward to this amazing discussion. Today, we have folks from the uh, Specialized Alternatives for Family and Youth, also known as SAFI. We have Veronica with us, and Veronica Hicks is the Executive Director of SAFI Nevada. She is responsible for uh, many things, including all aspects of clinical care and treatment. And she has an amazing distinguished career, not just in Nevada, but in other states, and has kept the focus on providing evidence-based practices in the highest level of care for children, youth, and families. And uh, Veronica has a master's degree in social work administration from Case Western Reserve University, as well as a bachelor's degree in social work from Ohio University. So welcome. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Our pleasure. And Melinda Rose is also from SAFI. And I love that acronym, by the way. Uh, so it, it's uh, going to be utilized today. And Melinda Rose is the clinical treatment director at SAFI Nevada. She's a licensed clinical social worker, as well as a certified hypnotherapist in the state of Nevada. Her career started in the child welfare realm and has continued with a focus in on making sure that the care that's being received is through a trauma lens shifting from what's wrong with someone to rather what's happened to someone. And she, along with many others at SAFI, are building this incredible community of hope and healing. And so it's really great that you're with us, Melinda, and sharing with us the neurosequential model of therapeutics, which is also the NMT. So welcome, Melinda. And lastly, it's Christy Bonfils. She is also a licensed clinical social worker. So today our panelists are amazing social workers and therapists. And she actually began her career uh, in uh, child welfare. But interestingly enough, she started studying psychology to shift over to the social work world. So she definitely is, is in the right field. And she is actually the clinical lead for NMT, 
uh, at, with Safi of the state of Nevada. She's actually going on to move towards being a provider of the therapy to actually be a statewide trainer. So we want to welcome all of you and thank you for taking time out and, and share your expertise with us. Thank you very much, Ken. Oh, our pleasure. And I think the first question, because I know this hour is going to go by very quickly, is how long has Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth, or SAFI, been doing their amazing work? And really, where is SAFI uh, throughout the United States? SAFI, Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth, is currently in seven states. Uh, we were founded in 1984. And you can go to the next slide, Ken. In 1984 in uh, Lima, Ohio. And since that time, we have grown so that we are currently in seven states. Uh, Safi of Nevada was founded in 1994. The other states that we are in are Alabama, Colorado, Indiana, Kentucky, Nevada, Ohio, and South Carolina. We have grown so that we are in these seven states, but we actually are in 29 different cities throughout this country, providing treatment foster care to our youth. And the services that we know our youth and our families need to either help them prevent from coming into foster care or to get them into a more permanent family situation. The services that we provide at SAFI include adoption, they include therapeutic foster care. And some of you may be saying, what is therapeutic foster care? We've all heard of traditional foster care. And traditional foster care is the foster care that's provided through your local uh, county and state governments. And children, all children who have had the um, misfortune of being removed from their own biological family suffer a degree of trauma. But for our children, our children, the trauma has been so immense that they have in fact developed a mental health diagnosis. And so we want to treat that mental health uh, uh, issue with our children and bring them in a journey of healing. And so that is the work that we do. We provide more um, clinical support to our foster parents. We have additional training that we participate in. We have additional staff who provide um, different mechanisms of clinical intervention to support the children and most importantly, the foster parents who offer the milieu of, of caring and support for our children. We also have in many of our markets, family preservation. Family preservation are services that are done in the home of our, our, our families, in the communities. And they're generally done to do two things, provide some of the mental health services that our families need, as well as looking at some of the concrete services that they need so that children may be prevented from coming into care or if they are already in care, maybe we can get them home a little bit faster. The other thing that we know is so important is reunifying our children. We know that it is, a, um, it is not a system that can raise a child. It is a community, it is a family. And so what we do is wherever possible, we work with the biological family of our children and we coordinate services so that biological family member also feels the support that SAFI has to offer when their children are reunified. It's a joyous time when our children are reunified and we want to celebrate that with our families. Um, we also know that in our communities, and we've heard this so much throughout the past year as we have dealt with the pandemic and we've dealt with the social justice issues that our country has faced, we are hearing more and more about the behavioral health needs of our children. And we know that all of our communities are in short supply of being able to provide that quality mental health care for some of our most vulnerable system, uh, citizens. So we think that offering that in Safi of Nevada is a true value add to the community uh, that we live in. We also know that some children are going to age out of care. They're going to turn 18, 19, 20 years old, and they unfortunately may not be able to be reunified with their birth family. They have not been adopted by a family, but we still want to ensure that that youth has the necessary skills and tools to be successful as they transition from foster care to uh, adulthood. And that's an incredible task, because when we look at the almost half a million children and youth, it's the older uh, youth that often get um, forgotten about. And once they turn 18 or 21, moving past that, um, it's nice to know that Safi has the, uh, um, the continuation of care.
And I think that the question that comes up is that when we had the title to come up with building a community of healing, there, there are many people who go, well, how do I do that? Well, maybe just Safi is so good at this. That's not something that I can do at my agency. So the question is, what, what were some of the first steps in Safi's journey in, a journey in building a community of healing? So this is my part. I'm Christy. Um, and I've been with Safi for, gosh, almost 10 years now. And I started off kind of really entry level. And at that point, when I started off, we had this kind of buzz around the office about reading this book by Dr. Bruce Perry called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. I'll get a little bit more into that um, in just a second, but this is, we were really excited about this book and how it could apply to our kiddos who have been through trauma before. So everybody had talked about that. And then it turned out that Dr. Perry was doing a, what he called a case-based staffing series. So he's been doing this work for this neurosequential model of work for probably 30 years now. Uh, but back in 2012, he was meeting with some of his, like what he called the flagship sites. So his first certified sites in this NMT model. And he would do these oversight calls and just kind of staff kiddos cases and give his insight about it to help maybe remove some barriers that might've been going on in the child's life. Oftentimes they were with residential sites. So the kids were um, away from their families and, you know, kind of just living with workers. So we got to listen in on that. I think it was a 10 call series or something like that. And when we listened to it, it, it kind of made it real for us. Like, oh, this is the work that we feel like we should be doing and we want to be doing. And there are people out there who are doing it this way. So it gave us a little bit of confidence to, to continue on with that. And then an opportunity came up where we could get certified um, in the phase one of NMT. And so five of our clinicians did that. Um, and that really started our journey in this. Dr. Bruce Perry is um, a leading world traumatologist and child psychologist um, and psychiatrist. So he's a doctor, he prescribes medication, um, he's a researcher, and he's an author. And so he's got lots and lots of experience doing what he's done. Um, he is, he's founded the Child Trauma Academy, which is in, I want to say Houston, Texas, but let me get that wrong and get in trouble for it. <laughs> um, so he started the Child Trauma Academy first, and then the neurosequential model has kind of taken its own life because now they've got the neurosequential model of therapy, but it's also branched into the neurosequential model of education, the neurosequential model of sport, and the neurosequential model for caregivers. And so it's really turning into a super collaborative um, process here. And so he's the, the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy, but he's also the president of the Neurosequential Model um, Foundation. He is the author I mentioned earlier of a book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. That came out in 2007, and it's really a book about his case case studies and how he's used his work. So if anybody's interested in reading that, it's a really good um, starter. And he's got another book called Born for Love, Why Empathy is Endangered and Essential. And then he just, just came out with a book in 2021 with Oprah last year um, called What Happened to You. And he's been working with Oprah for as long as he's been doing this work too. And, and the book, yep, Valerie's got it held up there. It makes it so, so, so easy to understand. So if anybody's interested in a little bit more of what I'm talking about, please go ahead and read the book um, and it'll be really helpful. Um, and he's, so he's, like I mentioned, he's done neuroscience research. He's written over 500 articles and chapters for textbooks and things like that. Um, some of the high profile cases that he's worked with are the Branch Davidian siege or the Waco in 1993, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, the Columbine school shooting in 1999, the September 11th attacks in 2001, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the FLDS polygamist sect in 2008, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, the tsunami in Japan in 2011, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings in 2012, and the Camp Wildlife fires in California in 2018. Um, 
So I think that's important when we're talking, you know, us being a trauma-focused treatment agency for kiddos that have been through trauma, I think it's important to mention those things because if you think about kind of the biggest big T traumas um, as learning experiences, that's really helpful for us to know. Um, and also I wanted to mention that uh, one of the sites, he's got lots and lots of sites. If you go onto the NeuroSequential website, they have a train trained map with all the different providers. And so if you're looking for somebody who is NMT certified at any level, you should be able to find it all over the world. It's a customized Google map that they've got. But if you go on there, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Oprah Winfrey's Leadership Academy for Girls in Africa, but they are also an NMT um, trained site as well. So we're up there in the ranks with some of the best. Um, yeah, so we got involved, like I said, with the 2012 case-based staffings, um, which is a prerequisite for the phase one certification. So we were lucky that we had listened to that mm -hmm. because by the time we were ready to start the certification, we had kind of already a little bit of it under our belt. Um, we have always operated from a, a family systems theory approach and an attachment-based approach. And so it's, it's been really natural for us to kind of move into that. But what we learned is that what the NMT has given us is more of a scientific foundation and more of a direction on where to specifically pinpoint our interventions to meet the child where they're at as an individual. We know that when developmental opportunities are missed or when they're experienced in a way that is causes them to learn maladaptive skills, we've got to go back to that age and developmental timeframe and rework it so that the rest of their brain can have that foundational understanding as they go on through the rest of their developmental milestones. So this has been really helpful for us in giving us that neuroscience and um, developmental psychology perspective on how to go back and do that. Because um, what we learned is the work that we were doing before, just from an attachment-based perspective, is not low enough in the brain. We've got to focus on getting a child to be able to co-regulate in a relationship that they have with a caregiver who cares for them, but also to self-regulate the, themselves and to get to know what their body feels like on a sensory level. So this has helped us scale it back a bit and meet those needs and help the caregivers help the child to meet those needs before they can work on that attachment stuff. Because sometimes what we've learned is that attachment can be very threatening when there has been threat in relationship with adults in the past. So we can't just dive in and attack that first. We've got to do some regulatory work with the kiddos first. Um, and it's helpful because what we're seeing with this is that there's so much when we're dealing with a system as far as courts go and legal guardians go and attorneys and all these adults that are in kiddos' lives that have a say that we don't have control over, that impacts the child's life, that causes stress. And so for us to be able to be cognizant of the adults around them and the life circumstances around them and help to keep them stable before we try any individualized intervention with the child we found that to be more successful. And so it's been helpful sort of as a way to translate to teams as well, the work that we're doing and why it's important. When people have our visuals that they have and our, our words to go with it, we found that they get on board really quickly and are able to work together really well, which is something that has been a struggle in the past. And we, we kind of feel like it's this magic wand almost because it communicates information differently. I'll show you what I'm talking about in just a minute, but um, it's been helpful for getting people on the same page. That team, oh, sorry, did you wanna make a comment? I was gonna say that, that you joined a great team and I love the fact they were looking at a mind-body connection where we do wanna look at physiology, psychology. So I love the work that you just mentioned and you were right, they were in Houston, just to give you an update. And, oh, um, and the uh, um, there's a lot large group of people that you're part of. And I love it that taking out of the lab information that's learned and Dr. Perry and the larger NMT group took it to the real life world. So very cool. Yes, we are so lucky and so thankful to have these mentors and 
um, relationships with us because the NMT community really is a community. We get on monthly calls directly with Dr. Bruce Perry on Zoom and we're listening to him um, guide his staff and we're able to ask questions and things like that. And we've also been able to schedule like additional meetings with other NMT certified sites to ask questions as we are getting started in this process. And, and they've been so gracious and so excited, surprisingly, to share with us their little blunders and caring that we don't make those same mistakes for the sake of the children. And so that has been really, really helpful for us. Um, so yes, yeah, so we, the other thing about it is it's pretty progressive in, a, in the way that it's not a specific intervention in the way that maybe CBT or DBT would be. It's more of a um, bird's eye view of what the treatment should look like. So Dr. Perry talks about how the clinician is more the conductor of the orchestra. So we, we, we take more of a um, director kind of approach, but not so much making ourselves at the forefront of the, of the progress of the work with the child. What we do is we collaborate with all the adults that they, we call the therapeutic web. And so that can be um, foster parent, teacher, babysitter, church members, dance studio staff, you know, anybody that the child has a relationship with, because we know that's where the healing is going to happen for the kids. And so we try to make sure that they get involved in all of those things that they can um, and heal their brain in a natural way, because we know that those once a week, 45 minute sessions, sitting down and talking is not going to be what's healing for the child. We have to activate those parts of their brain that are directly experiencing the skill in order to build it up like a muscle. And so we kind of sit back and we give a little bit of educational piece to those adults. And then we, we hope that they get involved in those things. So, um, I know, um, I would like to share with you all at this point, I think, uh, some examples of, um, tools that we have available to us and kind of use that to share with you how that helps our clinical decision-making process and treatment planning. I love the therapeutic web from the team approach. It's both individualized and it is um, complex and complete. We know that the brain develops in a sequential manner beginning in utero. So beginning at conception, we know that cells divide at a certain rate, right? And things happen in a specific order biologically. And so this is a representation of our brain and it's broken down into four different areas, four major regions of the brain. So this one down here is the brain stem. Um, and this is the stuff that I like to talk about. It's like nerdy sciencey kind of stuff, but um, the brain stem is largely developed at birth. You can see over here, the things that it is in charge of mediating. Babies, when they come out, need to be able to regulate their body temperature and their heart rate and their breathing and their blood pressure in order to survive, right? And so this is, this is largely developed at birth so that they can do that. And then the next region up here is a diencephalon, cerebellum, midbrain area. And that is largely developed around age three. Um, and you can see over here a little bit of what that um, mediates as well. Sleep, appetite, arousal, kind of stress levels, um, hyperactivity, hypoactivity, dissociation. And this is a little bit more, the brainstem is very, very reflexive. And the diencephalon midbrain area is more reactive. So this, this is important to say because this is about half of our brain here, right? That's not really a thinking part of our brain. It's reflexive and it's reactive. Then you get up here into this green zone, which is a limbic zone, which is the relational part of our brain. And where I had said before, we were targeting attachment and things like that. And this being too high in the brain, that's what I was talking about. Um, you can see here how it's in charge of emotional reactivity, attachment, sexual behavior. Um, lots of people want kiddos to work on social skills sibling relationships, parent relationships. And this is really not largely developed until pre-adolescence. So around age 12, kids are getting into school. You know, they're, they're learning social skills as much as they are 
um, academic skills. And then this last part up here is the cortex. And um, this is developing all the way into our adulthood uh, around age 25, it's most of the way developed. But I do wanna say the brain obviously continues to change and grow and make new connections and can always learn as well. But I, I like to say those ages because we lots of times have parent, parents that come in and they want us to sit a little five-year-old down and talk to them about their behavior and teach them a lesson in a 45-minute therapy session and expect, you know, that they're going to be better. And so what we talk about is the reason and the what happened to you behind why they're behaving that way. All of these little triangles up here, um, this is a dopamine norepinephrine and serotonin receptors. And the reason this is depicted here is because they, this is our regulatory system. And it starts down here in the brainstem that's very, very reflexive. And it goes all the way up to the cortex. And that mediates, it shuts off and turns on different parts of our brain. So when we are stressed down here in the brainstem, it's going to route to these lower parts of the brain to react before we're even able to use our cortex to have any sort of thoughts to weigh out pros and cons before we make a decision. And I think that's a really important part to, to teach any adult as well, that when a threat is sensed, and sometimes we don't know what that threat is, sometimes we don't know what that trigger is, when that's sensed, we're gonna make irrational decisions. We're not gonna be able to think um, and especially smaller children, right? Adults, adults operate this way, but smaller children, we have to expect, you know, that they're certainly going to act that way. So I wanted to share that. I'm going to stop sharing this, and I'm also going to share um, what a brain map metric looks like. And this is this is what um, we use in our phase one certification. So it's important to say, I kind of talked about a little how when there's a stress response, it turns off or on different parts of your brain. We call that state dependent. And that just means if we're under stress, we're gonna be operating in those lower parts of our brain. We're not gonna have as much access to those higher parts of our brain. So this cannot be used as an outcomes measure for that reason, because if things are going well in a child's life and they have lots of good support, there's a little, graph here that tells us this, um, then they're going to have, that's going to be a period of time where they're, they're amenable to services um, and, and we can work with them. But if they're in a period of transition, they've got their in trauma, they've got, um, you know, not enough support around them, they're going to be in this high risk zone and any sort of services really aren't going to be helpful for them. What they're going to need is to stabilize in that therapeutic web and get into a routine and experience some predictability, control, things like that until they, so they can bring that stress response down. So these first two graphs are more developmental history. It's really important for us to look at the relational context that a child has grown up in. So this red line is the adverse childhood experiences. Um, if anybody's in um, familiar with the ACEs, that's where it's really um, wrapped up with that as well. We know that there are physical health effects related to that, um, as well as social deficits. And then this green line here is the relational health. What is more important in a child's life is not the trauma that they experienced, but the support that they had around the trauma. So it can be a really, really good buffer if they've had lots of supports around. So we, we spend a lot of time focusing on who those relationships are, what that developmental history looked like to address that, what happened to you and put it into context. This is the really magical part about it. I think that everybody is most interested in. And you can see down the side here, it's broken down into those different brain regions. Um, you've got this, these six down here are the brainstem. These here are that diencephalon midbrain region. This lowest row on the top third is the limbic system. And these top two are the cortex and, and frontal cortex. This is all Dr. Perry's magic math, but we go into the system and we, based on interviews and documentation reviews, score this. Um, and we're able to use that to help us figure out the lowest part of the brain 
with the biggest deficit. So a lot of times it is this cell right here. And if you look down here, the key, this tells us that it's the attention piece. Um, and um, this row here, usually it shows us if there's a lot of hyperarousal reactivity. And so that can be really, really helpful for us in differentiating a lot of times kids will get into school and get labeled as ADHD. And we can say, hey, wait a minute, let's look at this attention as distractibility and maybe hypervigilance instead of an organic brain organizational difference, which is what ADHD is. So um, that's helpful for us. Um, and we can tailor specific interventions to target attention and strengthen that because we know if we strengthen this foundational area, we're gonna see all the rest of these cells naturally start to heal themselves. So that's really why we do that. This is a relational health measure. It kind of just looks at who is in the child's life and what is what is that? What are those relationships like, the quality? Um, this cortical modulation ratio is um, taken from that current functioning map and it tells us how well a person is able to use that top cortex in order to modulate the lower reactivity pieces to think about, hmm, I'm noticing that my heart is beating really fast. Let me take a couple of deep breaths so that I can calm down and think clearly. That can be really difficult. And so this tells us kind of developmentally where a person is at with that. And then these functional domains really help us um, with our treatment planning. So if we need to work on sensory integration, that will be um, indicated here or self-regulation or relational skills or cognitive because not everybody necessarily needs the body work depending on you know what the timing of the trauma was like and the relational piece. Maybe that's a strength that they've got so we don't have to meet them there. We can move on to the next zone. So this is really what helps us um, figure out what kind of interventions we might wanna do based on this. And this will tell us over here what percent the age typical is. So this, this one is 58% self-regulation. And so we would wanna work on those coping skills a lot. And then there's some just kind of generic recommendations for sensory integration um, activities. There's lots of resources within the neurosequential network as well. They've got some books out. Um, Mount St. Vincent has one called Doodles, Dances and Ditties that is available on Amazon. I use it all the time. Um, and it's broken down into these four sections as well. So you can just pull out an activity um, and work on it with the kiddo related to whatever zone they need to work on. Um, relational has some, cognitive has some, and um, cortical modulation ratio, just a little bit of a um, explanation of what that is. That gave for us um, who are new to um, NMT, that the concept of clinician as a conductor, as you mentioned. And so when you look at all the interventions, the possibilities, you're looking at um, if you're utilizing uh, CBT, CBD, CBT, or SEL, or all the other wonderful acronyms, uh, social emotional learning, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, it, it's yes. not going to match if the person truly isn't um, uh, regulating and their mind literally is not on the same page as their, their bodies. So very nice. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. So we, um, that is how we uh, come up with some, when we're doing our care planning and things like that, uh, you know, we have our long-term goals and we break it down into smaller short-term goals and then our interventions of what we're going to be doing. And so that's, that's really how we come up with those for, for our kiddos that have had brain maps done for them. Perfect. And the third question is, how does ASAFI use NMT? Again, when you think about some of the just springboarding with the last question with clients and then the families attached, um, but also within your organization, because I know we had a discussion when we were planning this, um, this session about embedding it throughout SAFI. How do you how do you do that? I can go ahead and address this question, Ken. Uh, so we realized early on that we cannot implement this model and treat children in a vacuum. Uh, it's a, a relational model. And so we knew that we had to spread the love of being in good, healthy relationships throughout our organization. 
so the way our office runs uh, at Safi of Nevada is kind of twofold, two things I want to talk about here. Um, we use what Dr. Perry taught us are the three R's in our relationships. So it's regulate, relate, and reason. And what that means is what Christy was speaking about, if a child is dysregulated and has some deficits in the lower part of the brainstem, it is very important that they regulate first and then feel safe in a relationship before you can do the cognitive parts and teach them or ask them to use coping skills or ask them to problem solve. They can't access that part of their brain until they're regulated and in a safe relationship. So one of the things we do is that we make sure we do that with each other. So the supervisors here um, know that we need to do that with one another. We have a really tight um, administrative a leadership team here. So we do it with each other. We get together once a week and we sit together and we talk and collaborate and we be in relationship with each other. And then we do it with the staff that we supervise through reflective clinical supervision. Um, we ask about how they're feeling. We take time to regulate, regulate one another in meetings um, before we speak to each other. We're very intentional about the regulation piece and the relational piece. And then we ask our frontline staff to do that with our foster parents and caregivers. So going in with curiosity, going in trying to identify the emotional need underneath the behaviors. You know, if a foster parent is upset and at their wit's end and it sounds like they are yelling at us, we know that we need to help them regulate first. We need to let them know that they are valued in the relationship. We value them. And then we help them reason about how they're going to how they're going to manage the child's behavior or, you know, whatever the problem is that's going on. So we do it with our staff, um, supervisors to workers, workers to foster parents. And then that's the treatment part of treatment foster pairing is that we ask our foster parents to then regulate, relate reason with the children that they're caring for. So it kind of trickles down throughout. Uh, another um, unique quality I think that we have in our Safi office is that all of our staff in, in the Las Vegas office understand uh, this model to some extent. So when you walk through our door, our Amanda, our the girl that's our district office manager at the front desk, she understands if a child comes in tantruming, even if they're a little older and they're being disrespectful or they're um, not really able to follow social cues, our admin staff understand this child is dysregulated. What can we do to help them? Let's help help this kiddo get regulated. Let's make sure they remember we're in a relationship. Those relationships are all built ahead of time. There's no punitive measures taken by any of our staff with the kids. Um, they take time, our staff take time to build relationships with the children ahead of time so that when there is a crisis, they know they're safe with any of us. It's not uncommon for a child to come to a therapy session here at the Safi office and spend 20 minutes of that session in with Victoria, who's our billing specialist, um, just chatting and talking and feeling comfortable enough to come into the therapy office where maybe they're going to have some difficult conversations. So if you come visit at our office this afternoon, there's a child in every space. They are in our spaces, there's snacks, we have a hot chocolate bar, uh, we're building a sensory room uh, with help from some community partners. Uh, we have a yoga teacher that comes on Wednesdays and teaches yoga for our children. We have PSR workers who bring the kids here for crafts and socialization and groups. And it doesn't really look like a professional office. It sort of looks like a professional office slash daycare <laughs> around here. And that's very intentional because we want kids to feel 
that they are in relationship with us, that they're safe here, um, that this place is theirs. This place is here for them. Uh, we know that we are part of that therapeutic web. And, and so we know we have to act that way. We have to be in relationship and respond to them in a way that is going to help uh, heal and build that part of their brain, just like a muscle, like Christy said. Um, so let's see, that's the three R's. I would also say that our interventions are also, um, you know, our therapeutic interventions are also designed to fall in line with the NMT recommendations, which we've learned through Dr. Perry. And then we kind of also individualize, like Christy said, and, and do that individual treatment that way. I absolutely love what you said, though, um, as a parent, I don't know if people are, are feeling the same way, but you often come up with this saying that do as I say, not as I do. And you're actually saying, say what I do. And and, and not just as I say, you're actually modeling for those individuals. Um, and, and that sets a, a great culture and climate that does support not only those individuals that you serve, but those who are very compassionate and providing direct care, because we often forget that we also need to take care of ourselves. So I, I absolutely appreciate that so much, Belinda. Thank you. So much of what we've heard when we talk about NMT really speaks to respecting people. It's about valuing the different roads, the journey that we're all on, and respecting the fact that that journey is going to be different for everyone. And so we know that in order to better understand the people that we're working with, the people uh, for whom we're working on behalf, we really need to understand who they are, uh, what makes them go, what hurts them, where is their pain. And we know that in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, we're offering an opportunity to broaden our framework so that we are creating an environment of respect, creating a, an environment that looks at the uniqueness of our individual uh, staff, our, our, our foster parents, our children. And we're saying to ourselves, what is it that we know about that person and about their uniqueness that we can bring to the table to both better understand them and assess them, but also to, to, to put them on that journey for healing? Because after all, at the end of the day, we want our children to be better and we want our families to be better. But we know in order for that to happen, we have to see who they really are. And unfortunately, one of the challenges that we have in child welfare is the disproportionate number of children and families of color. Um, within the child welfare system, uh, let's take Las, Las Vegas, for example. Um, Las Vegas has a population of about eight to 10% African-Americans. And yet on any given day, when I look at those youth who are on the referral list for treatment foster care in our community, there are about 40, 50, sometimes 60% of the children on that roster are children of color. And that suggests to us that there are some biases that are taking place as we determine who should be removed from their home who should get services to prevent that removal from their home and what services are going to be required so that those children can go home quicker. Across the country, unfortunately, what we have found in child welfare is that children of color stay in the system longer, are removed from their families at greater numbers, and the families themselves are offered fewer resources uh, in which to heal themselves. And so we want to mitigate against that. We don't accept that as a given. We know that people are going to need additional support when we know that in fact, they have had additional struggles that have been brought on by the society that we live in. And so when our team was constructed, and I've been very fortunate to have what I consider one of the best teams of my career, and I've, I'm 40 years out in my career. But what I really love about my team is that they, embrace the difference. And when um, the social justice issues hit a couple of years ago, um, our team had already been looking at what are the cultural things we need to understand in order to enhance the treatment possibilities for our families that would yield more success. And so that time just meant that we went into overdrive. 
Now, previously, all of my managers had participated in book clubs or, or reviews, if you will, around disproportionality. Years ago, we all read the book Just Mercy, which was written by uh, Brian Stevenson. And we read that book because it spoke to the disproportionate way in which the justice system um, uh, related to uh, the African-American community. And so in addition to just looking at how disproportionately impacted the justice system, we also looked at how does it impact the child welfare system? How does it impact the schools? How does it impact healthcare? And as we looked at all those things, what we were essentially doing is building our empathy muscles. When you understand the journey of a community, of a person, of a family, you then understand not just the weakness, but you're seeing the resilience and the strength that they had to have in order to endure the journey that they've taken. And so with our staff, with our managers having that grounded um, information and sensibility about what is going on with our families, we're better able to see them. Years ago, when I started, I can remember clinicians saying to me and to other families of color, I don't even see that you're black. Uh, how could you not? How could you not? I'm sitting here in all, in all my glorious brownness and you're telling me you don't see it. And what we didn't realize is that when you tell someone that you're essentially negating who they are. And you cannot get to a place of healing. You cannot get to a place of quality treatment when you're not attentive to who a person really is and the issues that they're bringing before you. A couple of years ago, I read a really good book by um, Dr. Rita Walker, and it was called The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. And this book was, uh, in, in the book, the author speaks to, the, to a situation in which she had a white colleague. And the white colleague told her she had what she thought was a wonderful, great relationship with her uh, client who was African-American. But during the time that she was seeing her client, during that span of time, she noticed that there, well, she didn't notice there was a, a racial um, event in their community. And the clinician just on chance mentioned that particular event to the African-American client. In that moment, she said there was so much that came from that client that spoke to the pain that she had been carrying and the, the aggressions that led to uh, some of the trauma that she was experiencing. What the clinician understood in that moment was racism, sexism, uh, gender orientationism, all of the isms are in and of themselves traumatic for those people in those particular populations. And so if we as clinicians are not looking at who they are and how that uh, has impacted their trauma journey, we're not going to be able to fully engage and fully understand and, and, and then present the opportunity for healing that we all want. We know that this is important because enhanced assessment, assessments lead to better treatment plans, better treatment plans lead to greater outcome success. And so that is why we see and feel it's imperative to marry both the DEI work with the NMT work, because at the heart of it, it's really about respecting the people whose lives we've been privileged to be a part of. Absolutely. And we should all be uh, uh, strengthening our empathy muscles and then our systems hopefully will do the same because our systems are made up of individuals. And as individuals, we all have a responsibility and pretending it's not there isn't something that we should never do. So thank you so much, Valerie. So I'll give you some examples of things that we've seen and things that we've known. We know that for children of color, particularly little girls coming into care, um, many times they're placed in a home that is not of their own culture. And in the past, in my early career, I would see children uh, in foster care who looked like children in foster care because their hair was not kept, their skin may have not been uh, moisturized properly. And so what we've done is just take that situation head on. About three weeks ago, we engaged a, an African-American barber and a stylist, a clinician, to actually talk to our foster parents about hair care. What, what do you do with a little black child who has different hair than your own? How do you know what products to use? And we want our families to ask questions. 
so that we can give them the answers to make them feel successful and make our children feel included and not excluded. Um, so we had this we had this seminar for all of our foster parents. Within uh, Safi of Nevada, we have been uh, fortunate enough to have some of our, our, our old staff, staff who left us, actually donate uh, hair care kits. Mm -hmm. And they're actually plastic like kits that are about this big. And then they have the wide tooth comb that I've used all my life and a, and a different kind of brush. And it has some hair care products, as well as some YouTube instructions about how to do your hair. So that's just one way in which we have looked at uh, how do we care for our, our families. But more importantly, we look at how do we care for the individuals that are working for us and with us. We are, it has come to our attention that sometimes maybe the African-American men here are struggling because number one, they're not in great numbers throughout the organization and the assaults that they may experience on a day-to-day -day basis out in the world can have an impact on their ability to be the best that we they want to be in terms of their care of the children and families. So right now we're looking at developing a support group for our African-American men. We will have a facilitator who himself is African-American um, psychologist who understands what it feels like to carry the weight of this job in addition to the weight of being a black man in America. And we hope that in doing that, the African-American men in our organization will feel the opportunity and will have the opportunity to, to give voice to their experiences and hopefully um, help us find ways to bridge the gap between what our children need and what they're currently receiving. The other thing is we've taught all of our clinicians in our uh, Safi of Nevada office how to advocate. You can't work for our kids if you're not learning how to advocate. You have to learn to advocate for them in the settings in which they sit. So, so many of our children have been suspended from school. Why is that? Well, we know because of the work that we've done and the learning that we've done in DEI that there are disproportionate number of boys of color who get suspended in school systems. So we don't want to just accept that as the given or that the child has done something. We want to explore where's that school system and understanding the needs of that child and how well are they meeting those needs. We're not going in the schools with, you know, blazing attitudes and whatnot, but we are going in grounded with facts and understanding that without uh, looking at the environment in which our children are going to school and living in, we're missing a large part of the, um, of the treatment process as it pertains to them being a child of color. We also know that so many LBGTQ children are so much more at risk because of their sexual orientation. Many times they've been thrown out of their families and then they go into a foster care system that says, I just want to ignore again who you are and save you. We're not here to change our children. We're here to accept them and love them for who they are. And so we have training around, from, we have a partnership with our local LBGTQ center so that they are um, coming to train our staff, coming to train our foster parents. And we look for opportunities to uh, embrace the cultural differences of the families and the youth that we work with. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm thinking of that I know that we do. I don't know, Melinda, Anya, are there some, uh, Anya, Melinda and Christy, are there some things that, uh, that you can think of that we do that I haven't mentioned? I'm really happy with the way we have decorated our office. Um, <laughs> it's really inclusive and, you know, signs for everybody uh, demonstrating that we think equality and uh, fairness in this place is for everybody, kind of just showing people that that's what we care about here. Yeah. You know, um, when when we were closed for COVID, um, our office was kind of shut one day early, mid-March, and that was the way things are, were. But about a year ago, when we knew that the world was going to reawaken, um, we were fortunate enough to have a colleague who said, well, I, I'll, I'll redecorate the office. And I said, well, I'll give you some money to help us redecorate if you redecorate it with a lens toward the culture of the children and families we serve. And so she went through and got a variety of posters and sayings and pictures so that when you walk through this door, you know that we want you, that we see you and that we respect you. There you go. 
you've actually taught me that advocacy is a verb and it bringing people to the table. Hopefully uh, other people feel the same and that um, just being present isn't enough. And I think that's what um, we, we see too often is uh, we think of system of care. We think of people just bringing, getting brought to the table, but getting the voice, especially of those we serve who, or who have been underserved has been an unbelievable uh, change. And out of a worldwide pandemic, I believe there was so many positives to celebrate and we need to move forward. And speaking of moving forward, it looks like we have about just a couple more minutes. And um, these are the webinars where sessions rather where you, you want to have, um, you know, more than one part, two, three, four. So <laughs> I just want to um, check in. And, and, and also, if I can, uh, we'd like to, Opika would definitely love to, um, uh, put that put this word out there to the attendees and we had you know a great amount of people join us uh for the hour so learning ways to support uh safi there's ways you can donate uh not i think not just uh monetarily but also it sounds like donating time uh towards advocacy and or part of their community becoming a foster parent as well as um employment opportunities um for those individuals who said you know what now I heard about Safi, I wanna work for Safi. Um, we do have a contact number and please, if this is the uh, correct number for folks to call the 800-532-7239, or if they feel more familiar with the email, uh, info at safi.org, that's S-A-F-Y.org. And I am just a little bit excited. So I wanna just make sure we mention a, the book giveaway of signed copies by Dr. Bruce Perry? Yeah, we, we actually um, will be um, continuing to work towards getting the signed copies. Uh, Dr. Perry is one of those individuals who's who's on the road um, more often than he is in one location. Um, but we will definitely, if people are interested in learning more about your work, um, please uh, email uh, myself at kmcgill at opica.com. Um, we'd love to speak with you um, if you're an organization, association, a clinic, hospital, anyone connected with the uh, human services field. Opika is um, providing these webinars and these sessions to have an, a, a continued discussion that we can't go back. We must go forward. And keeping the person in the center of care is all about moving towards change, equity, and impacting both ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, as well as the social determinants of health. So we want to be everyone to be active in the process of advocacy. Just don't show up. We want people to, um, uh, to be loud and to be heard. I don't mean scream, but in terms of make sure that everyone in the table hears what you have to say. And then um, maybe how about we just wrap up. If there's something that... Um, Folks just want to share in terms of some closing remarks, um, either about NMT or about SAFI or about the work that you do or the successes that you've had during the two years plus um, of, the, of the worldwide pandemic. Um, I would just like to thank you for allowing us to have this platform to share the work that we're doing. We're so excited about it and we get excited about it among ourselves every day. But we certainly want the world to understand the possibility for change and healing for our children. And so many times people look at mental health as something that you cannot impact. There can be great success with mental health treatment. And so we just encourage everyone to join us in this journey of healing. Thank you. If you do have further questions or want to learn more about our work as a, of a plural uh, setting, uh, please reach out to us. And uh, we hope everyone enjoy the hour together and look forward to many further discussions. And thank you for the work that you do. It's so needed. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.